Good morning. <clears throat> Thank you for the privilege and allowing me to bring God's word to you today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for sustaining us through the year and the year to come. And your inseparable love, help us through your Holy Spirit to rightly divide your word and to apply it to our lives. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, another year has come and gone. 2023 was a good and difficult year. Cindy and I celebrated our 45th wedding anniversary and uh, 49 years of being together. And I like to jest that she stole me right out of my crib for that. <clears throat> there were abundant moments of joy with our adult children. And of course, blessings of the multitude of grandchildren, new little ones in the family and the painful loss of family members. We had trials in relationships with family and friends we traveled too much. I had success and difficulties at work. We had highs and lows. And you could probably say the same about your family and your year, which may have included great highlights, blessings untold, and some difficult struggles. And of course, we are all affected by the ongoing culture war surrounding us and going on all around the world. And yet, here we are together with a new year upon us. It's customary at this time of year to both reflect on the year past and to look forward with anticipation and maybe some trepidation at the year ahead. So let's look at what the scripture has to say about what type of year 2024 will be for you. If you are a Christian... Scripture says this upcoming year will be a good year for you. If you haven't come to that place of faith in Christ as your Savior, this could be your best yet, if you do. Before we go through our text this morning, chapter 8 of Romans, which is about our sanctification and because of the provision of God's righteousness, I want to give you a brief and very high-level overview of the first seven books of Romans. We'll move quickly through this, and we won't have time to look up every scripture, but I do encourage you to take notes and the time to do so later. At times, it may seem a bit rapid-fire. Forgive me as we're bound by time. However, I always say, context, 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 background, and careful study are always crucial in understanding and rightly dividing God's word. Paul wrote to the Romans as a divided church. One of his purposes was to bring unity between the Jews and the Gentiles. In Acts 18.2, we see that in 49 AD, all ethnic Jews were expelled out of Rome. Claudius had had enough of the Jews and their factions and their fighting. So he decreed that all ethnic Jews were out. They had to go. It was a five-year edict, and so for five years in Rome, there were only house churches filled solely with Gentiles. Well, within that five years, Claudius died. And when the edict expired, his successor, Nero, didn't renew it. And so little by little, Christian Jews returned to home. And uh, so at that time of Paul's writing, you had... 
Gentile and Jewish home churches, and apparently, as I said, they weren't getting along, as is common between Jew and Gentile. So Paul felt compelled to write them in a purpose statement in Romans 8, 1 through 16 through 17. He writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel of the power of God unto salvation to those who believe, to the Jew first, and then to the Greek or Gentile. He's saying, guys, the gospel is for everybody. And then for the next two and a half chapters, beginning in 118 through 3.2, he talks about our sin. That would be the Gentiles. In chapter 1, he says the Gentiles are sinners. But in chapter 2, he says, by the way, you Jews are sinners also. And then in chapters 3, 9 through 20, the first part, he says, everybody's a sinner. Verse 310, there is none righteous. No, not even one. So we're all in the same boat. Then he gives us two and a half chapters of salvation, beginning in 321 through chapter 5. He tells us that there is a righteousness that has appeared from God, that sin has been paid for. So not only is God just, as sin has been paid for through Christ's sacrifice and righteousness, but now God has justified us. He also teaches that salvation is by faith, not by works. He holds up Abraham and David as the examples of who were not saved by their works, but understood they were saved by their faith through God's grace and what God had told them. So you have two and a half chapters of sin, two and a half of salvation, and then three chapters, six through eight, of what we call sanctification. Sanctification is a fancy word that means that you've been made holy for God's use. And the progressive sanctification is what we're going through right now. It is a period of time here on earth that we come more and more like Christ as he works that in us through his spirit and his word. So in chapter 6, we see the standard that we have died to sin. Paul says, what shall we say then that we should go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? We are no longer slaves to sin. We need to be, but we have, we're no longer slaves to sin. We used to be, but we now have been set free, and we are slaves to God. And it says, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. So that's God's standard. Don't sin. I've saved you. Don't sin. But then we get to chapter 7. And we see the struggle. Verse 7, 21 through 25. And let's, let's turn there. Romans 7, 21 through 25. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, 
But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, in my mind, serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Paul asks, why am I doing this? In my mind, I love God, and I want to serve him. But I find this law at work in my flesh, this law of sin, that I find the things that I want to do, I don't. And the things that I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who is going to deliver me from this body of death? And that brings us to chapter 8. It, is, it has to do with our God's sovereignty, our sanctification, deliverance, and security through the law of the Spirit. In verses 8, 1 through 2, he says, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death because of what Christ has done for you. For you have been set free of the law of sin and death by the law of the Spirit. Let's look at verses 8, 14, and 17. We are now seen as children of God. For all, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. We're now seen as children of God and heirs also. We used to be enemies of God, but now we find we've been adopted into God's family. Think about that and let that set in. If you know Christ and have been born again and love God through Christ, you are a royal child. But now in verse 18, he says, we are going to, be, we are going to see suffering for Christ's sake. So that can be persecution. But nonetheless, we can have hope, victory, and a future in the Spirit. The hope we have is the awaiting glory of the inheritance which is to come, which is the redemption of our bodies. All this is just building up to the crescendo of the believer's sure and secure position in Jesus Christ. This is written in verse 8, 28 through 39. I believe that this is the strongest defense in all the Bible of our secure position in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at today's scripture. Romans 8, 28 through 39. 
And now we know God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among, among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? <clears throat> Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's word. I love when Kevin says that. So, just put that. <clears throat> Literally, this passage uses the common phrase, this is what we know. All things work together for good to those who love God. Notice that Paul says all things for emphasis. It's not a positive or a negative. It's just all things. Things may be pleasurable. They may be painful. They might be difficult. They may be a blessing. But they are all good. Remember what 1 Peter 5.8 says. Um, and I'm going to turn there to 1 Peter 5, 8 through 10. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Firm in your faith, <clears throat> knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Scripture says here that even while being attacked by Satan, we are also being perfected by God at the same time. It's not limited to our circumstances either. <clears throat> things going on around you that you don't even know about. God's working in your life through people around you and in events around you as well. The sovereign God is working out the details of your life through his providence. And just as gears mesh together in perfect synchronization. 
It's not random. It's purposeful. And the good here indicates that it's for your advantage. Every circumstance works for your advantage. It's not evolutionary chance. It's not left to the whims of personal fate. I've heard people say, well, everything has a way of working out. And I'm sure you've heard that too. Well, it does, but not in the way we think. It's not some impersonal fate that makes things work out. And if we're honest with ourselves, frankly, things don't always work out the way we think they should or the way we want them to. Ever heard it say, it's all good? It's all good. Who would have expected that a hip saying would align with scripture? Modern man did not coin that phrase. Paul did, the first century. But it's only all good if you're a Christian. How can that be? And isn't that a bit arrogant of me to say? Let's look at the passage again. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. According to his purpose. So he limits this to those who love God. It's actually first in the sentence here. And to claim this promise, you have to have entered into that love relationship with the true and living God. Jesus told us in the Gospel of John 14:21, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and I will disclose myself to him. We are to love God and to demonstrate that we are by, by keeping his commandments. That's our demonstration of, his, of our love for him. John 16, 27. Jesus states, For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believe that I came from God. We have, enter, <clears throat> we have to enter into this love relationship with him. And this is by believing that he was sent, Christ was sent to be our Savior. I've heard multiple people on several occasions say they love God, they just can't accept Jesus. To which I say, unfortunately, you really don't love God or know him. Jesus said there is only one way to the Father, and that's through him. So there really is no love for God if there's no love for Christ. John 14, 6, when Jesus is talking to Thomas, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So it's only all good if you're one of those who is recognized as one loving God and his son. And then in the parallel statement here in verse 28, he continues, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, this is God's effectual call. When God makes the call on your life, you are coming. These are those who God placed his divine love on. In John 6, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's the call of God that Paul is talking about here. In 1 John 4, 10, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That means that God turned his wrath away from us and put it on Christ. 
and has also changed our relationship from being an enemy to being a child. Then in verse 1, John, um, in um, chapter, excuse me, in 1 John 4.19, he states, we love him because he first loved us. This is divine grace, will, and plan. And God has purpose in our victories and in your trials. That's what Paul wants you to draw from this. It's not just about the blessings that come your way, but the difficulties and the struggles too. God has your best interest in mind, and this is a hard pill to swallow sometimes, and sometimes you have to say it to people who are hurting at the right time to say this must be necessary for you. Because if it wasn't necessary, it would not be happening. But God loves you, and he cares for you, and he knows what you need, and he is working it out in your life. Have you, have you ever seen a tapestry being woven together? The backside of the tapestry doesn't really appear to have a pattern, a rhyme or reason to it. But when it's done, and the front side is examined, it's beautiful. And that's the way your life is, and we can't see all of what God is doing in your life at this time. Look at verse 829. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. When your life is fully revealed in eternity, new heavens and the new earth, we will see his will fulfilled in our life. Whom he foreknew. But that is, but that is what he determined in his mind, if you will. He predestined. That's a decision of the will. And what did he predestine us to? Well, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. Not just physically. We're going to be glorified with Christ in a glorified body too, future. But it speaks more to the fact that we're going to be conformed to the image of his character and to his personality and to his divine being. That we will be like him in every way we think, speak, and act. And that's going to be done partially through suffering in this life. We might need that pain. We might need that persecution to draw us closer to him. And become more dependent on him. And his purpose is that Christ, the God-man, would have preeminence over many brothers. Yes, he is our big brother, but also our Lord. We've been adopted into his family through the spiritual rebirth. It's very clear that we are adopted into God's family. And if you know Christ, let no one tell you, if you know Christ, that you're not a child of God. And that adoption into his family is future. Conversely, if you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior... I'm sorry to say, you are not a child of God. One of the greatest lies of our compassionate culture is that we are all sons and daughters of God. We need to turn to Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5.
And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. The prince of the power of the air is Satan, just to be clear. Among them, we too also formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the, fire, the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. We are originally, by nature, children of wrath and sons of disobedience, as I, we, once were, prior to being born again of the Spirit through faith in Jesus. Of course, the future holds glorification of our bodies as heirs, spoken of previously in 8, 17 through 19, as a future event. So God determined we would be conformed to the image of his son. When God determines something is going to happen, it's going to happen. There's no doubt about it. We're going to be conformed to his image. So we look at verse 30. He says, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. We talked about this earlier. This is the effectual call. He doesn't bring you against your will. He changes your heart and opens your eyes because you're not, we're not thinking the way you ought to in the old person. And we need him to grant us faith and repentance. When called, you're going to come. When this happens in an instant, we realize who we are and what sinners we are and who God is, and we realize the need for a savior. At that time, when we accept Jesus, in an instant, he justifies us. It's a legal term, declaring us righteous. Because of what Christ has done, he doesn't make us righteous. He's conforming us to become more and more righteous in this life. But he declares us righteous, and he can do that through Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. Even though he is a just God and has to punish sin, and our sin had previously condemned us. But you notice all five of the verbs that he used here are past tense. He foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, and he glorified. They're all past tense. Now, why is that? It says that he glorified us. Let's take that one. Well, wait, we're not glorified yet, right? But Paul uses a past tense for a future event because it's going to happen. It's sure. So you see this progression from eternity past that completes the unbreakable chain of salvation. And because salvation depends on God from beginning to end, you can be assured that what he is determined to do, he will bring to pass in your life. That's our trust in what God's word tells us. Now, in verse 31 through 34, he confirms his promise through his sovereignty. What shall we say to these things? 
<clears throat> if God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one that condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather was raised. Who is at the right hand of God and also intercedes for us? So here we see God's supremacy over all things and Christ interceding on our behalf. 31 through 33, we see supreme God is for us. And in 34, we see that Christ is for us. In 31, Paul says that, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? What in all creation could oppose him? Now, we know that there's a lot of people that come against us for our faith. We know the spiritual battle that's going on in the heavenlies. We know that Satan is against us. Demons are against us. And the minions that rule this earth But we really don't fight against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principality of the air. This is a rhetorical in that they can be against us, but the question here is, can they win? Can they successfully be against us? And the answer is absolutely not. God is the supreme being of the universe, the omnipotent God. That's Paul's point here. And he goes on to say, that he didn't withhold the ultimate sacrifice to prove his love for you, but God determined that his son would come and die a cruel death on the cross and that we, that, so that we could be part of his family, so that we could be trophies of his grace. If he didn't hold that back, what else could he do to prove his love for you? Paul shows us that God said he paid for sin with his son. And not only that, but even as we stood accused, he now intercedes for us. His love triumphs over all things, all conditions. In verse 35, he asked the rhetorical question, who will separate us from the word? And that word, by the way, is divorce. So who would divorce us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation... That's pressures and difficulties that come from outside of you. Well, the distress, that's the stress we feel internally, the turmoil, the problems that we may be facing. What about persecution? We know what it's like when people come against us for our faith, but many of our brothers and sisters still give their lives to this day in other countries for their faith in Christ. What about famine? If you don't have food, does that mean that you'll be separated from Christ's love for you? What about nakedness? Do you lack clothing or appropriate shelter? What about peril? Do you know the dangers of life? It's rough going out there in the world every day. Paul suffered all these things. And finally, or sword, which refers to the government and possibly a violent death by the government. If any of those things happen to you, Paul asks, does that mean that you've been separated from Christ? And he gives us this passage from the Old Testament, Psalm 44, 22. Just as it is written for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered to be, to be sheep. We're considered sheep to be slaughtered. This psalm is about the Jewish people 
and they were being afflicted, and they were being persecuted by their enemies. And the psalmist states that we have been faithful to you, Lord, and yet this difficulty is coming on us. And that's where this phrase is coming from. Paul's point is that it's always been this way for God's people. Always been persecution. Don't think that just because Christ has come and died on the cross for you that everything's going to be rosy and a life of ease. But this doesn't mean that you've been separated from his love. And in fact, and in verse 37, but in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So none of these things will separate you from his love. It's what he did for us. Paul says, look, you conquerors, you're going to get through this. Because Christ loved you, he gave his all for you. Then Paul wraps it up in verse 38 and 39 saying, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This certainly puts to rest that there isn't anything that will separate us from God once he has called us. The list is four contrasting pairs and two single things. And he starts out and talks about the realm of human experience and says, neither death nor life. Now, you can't be anything but dead or alive, right? Okay, so if you die, you will, be, you will not be separated from Christ, but you will be with him. You will have the prize. You'll be with Christ. But if you live, Paul says... Christ to die is gain, but if you live, you'll be continually conformed to him and, and conformed to the likeness of Christ's image. So either or, you're being conformed to him or you will be with him. Okay? That's the sanctification process you're going to go through. So the realm of human existence won't separate you. Then he talks about spiritual things. He references angels. Now, that would be holy angels because he's doing a contrast here. Um, nor principalities, and that would be the wicked angels. And that's listed in Ephesians 6 and in Colossians 1, Did you choose to go there. So what we see is that the powers and the principalities, spiritual beings cannot separate you. Then he goes into time and says, nor things present, nor things to come. So what else is there? The only things left are in the past, and they can't, is because he has already dealt with them, with all of our past, and that didn't separate us from the love of Christ as he predestined. Then in verse 39, he says, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing can separate you from God. This list is exhaustive, except for God. And he's the author of the list, the creator of all things, and gave his son so he could redeem us and be with us forever. And Paul asserted, no matter what happens in your life, it's going to be for your spiritual growth and benefit. And this knowledge should be an encouragement to you. 
Yes, God's standards are high, and we fall short, and we feel wretched about it, but there's no condemnation for us. We are secure in his love. And in closing, I would like to ask the question again. Will 2024 be a good year for you, Christian? I think so. And I think Scripture supports that as long as you love God through faith in Christ, so long as you've been called according to his purpose, then you can know with confidence that 2024 will be a very good year for you. Now, thankfully and with all humility, I'm commissioned to be a witness of Christ to you. That whether you are young or old, new to attending church, or been in church all your life, raised in church. If you have never answered the call and would like to do so now, you too will be secure in Christ and nothing will ever separate you from God. And that is good news. He's been patient. Turn to him. Ask him into your heart and into your life now. Don't start the new year without Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed sinners, not worthy of even a glance from you. And yet you chose us before the foundations of the world to be conformed to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. To belong to you, to be adopted into your family, that our sins would be forgiven and that we could bring glory to your name because of your grace. We are trophies of your mercy and your grace. We don't deserve anything, and yet you provide us with all things, and we thank you for that. And Father, as the year unfolds before us, that we would remember how secure we are in your arms. You will not abandon or forsake us, and the difficulties that we go through are for your glory. Help us to come alongside each other, minister and support one another as you conform us to the image of your son, as that also brings glory to you. Father, we ask that you transform us for your glory this upcoming year. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.